So why are we doing this? Our hope is that as we do this study in participation with Americans across all demographics, we get valuable data that all agencies can use to make better choices in terms of how to enable these remote biometric and uh, digital technologies so that if there's if there's inherent challenges for certain demographics or populations, that we can proactively address them and continue to make that access more proliferic and more easy to use for all Americans. Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, inside the Federal Acquisition Services reorganization, and how FAS is looking to an equity study to make government work for everyone. It's Tuesday, September 26, 2023. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, where you'll hear the latest news and trends facing government leaders. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Billy Mitchell. Here's what's happening now. The latest round of grades under the Fatara scorecard are in, and things look good. Eight agencies improved their grades since last December, with two more earning an A grade, the Departments of Education and Labor, while none fell lower. Meanwhile, six other agencies also improved their overall scores from a C to a B. Those are the Departments of Agriculture, Energy, Homeland Security, and the Interior, Office of Personnel Management, and the Social Security Administration. Typically, the House Oversight Committee hosts a hearing to review what's been a biannual scorecard release since 2015 and calls on a variety of CIOs and federal IT leaders to testify on progress. But this time around, more than nine months since the last scorecard's release, the House Subcommittee on Cybersecurity Information Technology and Government Innovation hosted a roundtable on Tuesday afternoon led by ranking member Representative Jerry Connolly of Virginia. Congressman Connolly said, Quote, we cannot abandon our traditional biannual oversight cadence of FATARA. And in other big news for the federal IT community, the Office of Management and Budget has finally issued guidance for the 21st Century Integrated Digital Experience Act. The guidance, called Delivering a Digital First Public Experience, also known as M2322 and signed by OMB Director Shalanda Young, sets new standards and actions for agencies as they look to enhance and modernize the way they interact with the American public through digital services and websites, as required by the IDEA Act since 2018. Federal CIO Claire Martirana announcing the new guidance pointed to staggering stats about just how bad the federal government is at serving constituents in the digital age, saying that only 2% of government forms are digitized, 45% of websites have not been designed to work on mobile devices, and 60% of websites are not fully usable by those who use assistive technologies. Martirana said, quote, when people search online for information and services from our government, they get too many results with confusing answers, and it's not clear what they should do next. This is unacceptable. We can and must do better. You can read more about these stories and much more at fedscoop.com. The General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service is in the midst of a major reorganization. Led by Commissioner Sonny Hashmi, the reorganization will be implemented beginning next month at the start of fiscal year 2024 to better meet the needs of federal customers and simplify interactions with GSA. Hashmi, a longtime federal servant and former CIO of GSA, joins me now to discuss the reorg, how FAS is looking to make government work for everyone with the results of a new equity survey, and how good acquisition is essential to the administration's tech modernization agenda. Sonny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. It's great to see you. 
It's great to see you too. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to 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 be here and uh, share some of the work that we're working doing uh, over at FAS and uh, for the last uh, uh, you know two to three years now. Well, I was going to start there and say, you know, you've been in this role now uh, for for several years. It feels like it was just yesterday that you uh, came back to GSA now as the the head of the Federal Acquisition Service. And you, we were talking before we got started here, and you've got a lot going on. It's obviously. Uh, closing in on the end of the fiscal year, which is a busy time for everyone, but uh, even much bigger things that have been kind of in the works for several years now. So um, let's start there, you know, as we kind of look into some of the work that you're doing, what are some of those bigger items that you you kind of want to flag that um, have been in the works since the early days of the Biden administration and that are starting to come to fruition today? Yeah, so thanks for asking that question. As uh, as as you know, and hopefully your audience knows, uh, FAS is a very broad organization. We have uh, responsibilities that span the breadth of the federal government, and we support the government uh, at all levels in multiple ways. Um, our organization has been has been uh, instrumental in many of the uh, major initiatives that the administration has been driving for the last uh, two and a half, coming to three years now. Uh, everything from uh, supporting uh, our, of course, our military partners, supporting FEMA and natural disaster uh, relief and response, um, all the way to making sure that uh, there's uh, trust and security in our supply chain. And uh, increasingly, as Americans rely on digital channels uh, to interact with their government, uh, especially accelerated through the years of the pandemic that our country went through, FAS has an increasingly large role to play in making sure that those digital channels are not just accessible and equitably uh, available to all populations, but also are designed with 21st century technologies in mind and agencies have access to common tools and capabilities that allow them to accelerate that digital transformation and continue to make progress in that front. So on that note, in fact, one of the, one of the things that we've recently announced, and I wanted to just take this moment to highlight it again, is that one of the key things that becomes uh, important as you start to think about how to enable government in the digital realm is to make sure that government services that are delivered digitally, digitally are accessible in equal manner to all populations. We've noticed, and we actually know this in research, through research, that socially and economically underserved communities are the largest users of technology when accessing government services and benefits. And, 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 and these are the populations that also need these benefits in the most acute manner. So if you think of like a, a, somebody who's been uh, d uh, disaffected by an effect, by the latest uh, fire uh, uh, wildfires in Maui, or those uh, people who were affected, uh, you know, uh, through unemployment during the COVID years, or other such scenarios, these populations need that help immediately. And and so so as we think about that environment, we want to make sure that we have equitable access to digital platforms across the board. And so as a result, uh, what we've recently done is we've announced that uh, we're leading a study um, uh, and we're specifically focusing that study on uh, one specific uh, uh, issue items uh, around uh, identity, uh, remote identity verification and proofing technologies that people might use. And as you know, that is step number one in any time somebody interacts with a government service uh, digitally. The first step is to log in in a secure manner and to prove to the government service, you are who you are so that we can manage fraud and we can appropriately administer benefits to the right people, put dollars in the hands of the people who are the right people and the need the most. And so we're, we're testing these, uh, these biometric-based matching and other algorithms through the study. Our goal is to recruit as many as 4,000 participants across demographics. And this is part of our commitment to collaborate with the American public to improve this everyday interactions that they have with their government. 
We plan to release the final study results in a peer-reviewed publication. The report will present a statistical analysis of the performance of identity verification technologies across demographics, and will explore the causes behind any negative or inconclusive results. So why are we doing this? Our hope is that as we do this study in participation with Americans across all demographics, we get valuable data that all agencies can use to make better choices in terms of how to enable these remote biometric and uh, digital technologies so that if there's if there's inherent challenges for certain demographics or populations, that we can proactively address them and continue to make that access more proliferic and more easy to use for all Americans. And so this is just one example on how FAS is playing an important pivotal role and investing time and effort in doing something that's going to have a multi-generational broad-based impact across all sectors of government. So I'm very excited about this work. And by the way, if anyone who's listening is interested in participating in the study, we encourage you to come and uh, visit us at gsa.gov forward slash equity and find out more about the study and participate if you can. Yeah, and I imagine this will play pay huge dividends for login.gov. And I remember back early on in, or maybe not early on, but several years ago, um, that the choice to sort of sidestep doing some of the facial recognition type things because you wanted to get it right. So this seems like a step in that direction. Absolutely. Listen, uh, like we have uh, we have a responsibility as public servants to to get this right. Now, get this right means that we have to continue to increase the the fidelity, the capability that uh, that we need to make available through programs such as login.gov to make sure that agencies can uh, leverage and access the best of breed technologies when they're looking to verify identities, when we're uh, looking to prevent fraud in their administration of grant programs and other such programs. However, we need to do it thoughtfully because we don't have the luxury of leaving parts of the population behind. We have to do it in a way that addresses to, that serves all Americans equally. And that is our commitment that we have to stand by. And that requires thoughtful assessments, thoughtful analysis, and deliberate decision-making that, that, that we can stand behind. Now, of course, the technology world is changing fast. New capabilities are coming out every day. We're working very closely with our partners, whether they're NIST or the private sector companies, and we're continuously testing many of these technologies to make sure that we can continue to invest in the right capabilities. And so more, more, more of that to come. We're excited about the progress made on that front. But the, the study is not just going to inform our login program, but also going to inform all agencies across the board at, at all levels of government as they think about moving to digital uh, service delivery on what kind of um, you know what kind of considerations need to they need to bake into their capabilities before they do so well as i mentioned you know we're getting close to fiscal year 2024 i know you're probably fully revved and ready depending on you know how things shake out on capitol hill before that uh, happens but uh, outside of that i'm curious you know the general state of the federal acquisition service how are things going with thas as you come up on the end of the fiscal year um, and I know you're going through quite a bit of a reorg and streamlining some things. What's the progress there as we near uh, 2024 uh, on the fiscal calendar? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I'm very proud of is the great work that the, the FAST continues to deliver for our customers. Ultimately, everything we do on behalf of our customers add value to their missions. And this is, in fact, one of our key founding principles. Every single person in FAS, their performance plan, the first element of the performance plan is how does your work add value to our customer's mission? So I'm very proud of the, the, the singular focus we apply towards that, uh, towards that goal. Uh, FAS continues to deliver more and more every year. Uh, this year, we're trending to over $90 billion worth of products and services that we're going to deliver for our customers. And just two years ago, just two and a half years ago, that number was close to $75 billion. 
So just in the last two and a half years, we've increased by over 20% year-on-year growth in the amount of uh, value we're creating and the services we're providing to our customers. And that is a testament to not only the great work that the FAS employees do every day, but also the quality of the work we perform. So I'm very, very proud of those numbers, and I'm very proud of the work we do. One of the things that we are constantly thinking about and I am constantly thinking about is how do I leave this organization when I eventually uh, you know, uh, move on to something else in, in, in a better state than when I found it? And specifically, I look at it from the lens of if you look forward 5, 10, or 15 years into the future, how do we set up our organization for success in that time horizon and beyond? Right. So as FAS continues to deliver and is in a very strong and uh, healthy financial posture, we continue to deliver on important initiatives like uh, like the electrification of the federal fleet, modernization of the telecom environment, um, and, and, and the list goes on. We want to use the time now to set ourselves up for success in the future. So uh, one of the things that's become very clear to us is that that as we think about that future, we want to pivot the entire organization, our business processes, our organizational structure, how we do the work, and how we work with our customers to a customer orientation. This is not different than how private sector organizations think about when they think about serving a particular market. They align their account teams, they align their business development teams to the customer segments. That allows those, that, that, that orientation allow uh, those teams to over time become much more familiar with their customer's mission, be able to deliver specific solutions that matter to their customers. And then this is exactly what we're trying to do. So historically, FAS, um, uh, the organization was structured around geographies. That structure made sense 10 or 15, 20 years ago, but a lot of the work happened on paper, a lot of the meetings happened face-to-face, and a lot of our customers had decentralized operations. But what we've noticed over time is that a lot of our customers centralized operations, whether it's acquisition operations, technology operations, to centralized locations across the country. And therefore, it makes less and less sense for us to have decentralized geographical team when our customers are expecting to, del- to, to get our support in one concise, uh, repeatable, and predictable manner. And so as a result, we're going through a large reorganization of our organization. And the exciting part is that the entirety of that organizational uh, strategy and plan has been, del- has been developed bottom-up by frontline teams in FAS that serve our customers every day. They have had a direct stake in defining and deciding and driving that structure and that design on how we should be organized. And it's been consistent across the board. We want to serve our customers by aligning all of our processes and our uh, and our structures to our customers. So when we when we are done with this reorganization over the coming uh, weeks and months, uh, our teams, whether they're teams that are doing acquisitions, delivering projects and programs, or, or engaging with our customers on uh, identifying new opportunities and helping them through that entire life cycle are gonna be aligned to customer segments. So now imagine the customer has to work with one team that they get to know over time. That team gets to know the customer's mission really well. They get more and more expertise in that mission. And so through that kind of a structure, I'm confident that not only are we going to increase the level of intimacy and service that we deliver for our customers, but also increase the number of opportunities we create for our FAS team members over time. Our our team members are still gonna be located all over the country and all over the world. In fact, more of them are gonna be located closer to where the customers are rather than in central office locations. They will have more opportunities to, to participate in national programs. And over time, we're going to use this model to deliver better for our customers. So I'm very excited about this change. It's uh, already uh, well underway. In the next couple of weeks, we're gonna be making some official uh, HR changes 
that is going to impact, uh, that's going to formalize this change. But then the work really starts from that point. Over the coming year, we're going to be doing a lot of optimization to be able to align all of our business processes, acquisition operations to our customer segments. So this is something that's foundational, and I'm confident that over the next 5, 10, or 15 years, it's going to show results over and over again. Well, I imagine there's a lot of folks in the acquisition community that are going to be happy to see that flattening and sort of a streamlined approach. So uh, that sounds exciting, and we'll definitely keep an eye on it. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to talk about that we've we've heard a bit about this year is transactional data reporting. We've heard about this for several years now, but it seems like it's been a hot topic this year. Tell me more about the progress there and how you're sort of making headway with that. Yeah, absolutely. So listen, I've been, I'm on the record from the very beginning saying uh, that the ac modern acquisition is actually a data challenge. We need high fidelity, reliable, and, and detailed data to be able to deliver the kind of automation and intelligence that we need to continue to streamline acquisitions. The world of acquisition is changing and it's becoming more and more and more complex. If you think about the sources of, uh, of where the products and services that we consume come from, we're living in a global supply chain environment. One of the things that the, the pandemic has shown is that our, the US government is highly reliant on this global supply chain. We wanna make sure that we have line of sight into what's being bought, what's being consumed, and exactly where these products and services originate so that we can have resiliency, we can manage security and risk, and we can continue to deliver for the American people. So the transaction data reporting is a fancy name, but ultimately it boils down to our practice of collecting detailed data at the transaction level anytime the government purchases everything, anything. This plays a key role in how GSA can improve both the acquisition experience for the federal agencies and the selling experience for government service providers. Once we have a deeper understanding of what's being consumed, what's being bought, we can start to apply the right analysis to make sure that government agencies are leveraging the best pricing. They can uh, negotiate better, but most importantly, we can have a deeper understanding of what is being bought from a perspective of where's the risk? Where's the supplier base that may be constrained? Where do we need to create new opportunities for small businesses to grow? Because there may not be much uh, in terms of uh, competition or availability in the marketplace. Our mission to deliver products and services at the best value for the American people. So using the technology we have available today, we can process and analyze data much more efficiently than ever before. And so by knowing this data, by collecting this data and managing and putting in the hands of decision makers at the point of decision making, we can do great things. So I'll show you, share you a couple of things. First of all, we've seen in the pilots that we've done so far with TDR, three consistent themes. And I want to make, uh, make it very clear. We've seen better contract level pricing under TDR and then contracts under the legacy pricing model. So the government wins because when you, when you elevate competition and when you focus uh, results using data-driven decisions, the government can negotiate better contract level pricing. Number two, we have consistently seen lower contractor reporting burdens. And we hear this over and over again from contractors and vendors who are participating in this program, that their burden to participate in the government marketplace goes down significantly when they participate in TDR. And not just the burden, but also the risk that they have to uh, have to maintain on their books goes down significantly. And lastly, we, want, we get valuable market intelligence data not available under any other regime. And that value, uh, market intelligence drives a lot of different things. For example, it allows us to protect national security by using the data uh, and uh, to illuminate the supply chain and understanding where these products are coming from. 
We can promote the use of Ability One items, for example, and restricting the sales of non-compliant products that may be built in countries that we don't do business with, or they may have other concerns around TAA or other disclosures. Similarly, we can provide market intelligence back in the hands of industry partners so they can have intelligence around what their competitors' prices are. And they can understand what's being bought and what's not being bought. And therefore, they can make better business decisions on where they need to invest their efforts. All these things are good, not just for customers and the government, but also for our supplier base. And so my, I'm excited about this program. We do have plans to expand it over time. We want to do it in a thoughtful way. We want to make sure that we do it in a way that we can rely on that data and we're using that data for the benefit of the taxpayer. And so as you move forward into FY24, you will see a lot more communication coming out. And uh, we have some plans to continue to leverage that data better, to, to, to have that data complete and accurate, and to continue to expand into new categories. Well, Sonny, as we close out, one last quick question. And, you know, tech and tech modernization is obviously a major mission set under FAS and uh, the technology transformation services is part of that. And, um, you know, we've also heard a lot from Administrator, Administrator Carnahan about fixing the damn websites, which we all love to to uh, quote, but um, can you give us an update on some of those big top level initiatives that you're driving home uh, in a similar fashion in, in that tech uh, modernization portfolio? Absolutely. So listen, having uh, had the pleasure to serve as a CIO for the agency for a number of years, I can tell you firsthand, tech modernization is not easy, right? It's a, it's a complicated, multi-year uh, involved process. And uh, there's many reasons why it's complex. Um, and what we're trying to do is to uh, is to go methodically in category by category of those reasons and start to take down the barriers that have existed. As an example, one of the one of the ways that uh, tech modernization has been challenging for agencies is the appropriation cycle. Not having access to capital dollars has made it harder in the past for agencies to invest DM&E dollars because so much of their budgets go towards operations and maintenance. And so that's one of the genesis and the reasons behind the establishment of the technology modernization fund is to make those uh, capital dollars available for agencies to accelerate that modernization, and then over time pay back into the fund as that modernization leads to cost uh, cost reductions over time. Similarly, uh, within the FAS organization, we're doing many, many different uh, things to, to reduce the burden for agencies to go down that modernization journey. There's so much work that goes on when you have multiple systems that interact with each other on the back end. When most of these systems the government agencies use do exactly just that. And so the agencies who have to rebuild these solutions over and over again, re reinvent the wheel over and over again, we're doing a lot of work at TTS to reduce that burden. And we're doing that through uh, organizations like uh, the Centers of Excellence and the AT&F uh, team that have best practices built out. So imagine an agency that is about to deliver, reimagine re or reinvent um, a, a type of system like a case management system. These teams can go in and help that agency think about what that journey looks like because these teams have done exactly that work for other agencies before. So, so by using that best practice, we have people on staff who can help agencies think through data challenges, acquisition challenges, make sure that they understand UX and CX challenges, make sure that they can leverage modern technologies like AI so that ultimately when that, that, that requirement goes to the market, it's really well thought out. Look, I've been in the private sector for many years and I've been in the government for many years. I can tell you without any reservation, nobody wants to be part of a failing project. Not a public private company, not the government agency. 
the way we do the, the way we leverage ATNF and COE is to reduce the risk of failing projects when the requirements are well uh, are, are well written when the agencies are much more informed on how to manage these programs and projects both the government uh, operations when but also does the private sector because they're now part of a successful program and they have a better partner, a better buyer on the other side. Similarly, TTS is investing a lot of work on shared services. So when we, whether it comes to programs like login.gov and US web design system, we see that reusability of these shared services significantly reduce the effort that agents have to expend otherwise to recreate the wheel over and over again. Between login, for example, uh, which has surpassed over 70 million uh, accounts at this point, and is actually serving every single cabinet level agency's uh, agency for different applications to the US Web Design Service, which if you think of a US Web Design Service, it creates a common set of tools and capabilities that agencies can plug into their front end websites and capabilities and to, to develop a consistent look and feel for the citizens that are interacting with the government. So far, 94 agencies and 458 websites use this capability. 1.1 billion plus page views per month go through websites that have been optimized using the U.S. Web Design Service. 28% of government-wide page views, in fact, 28% of the entire federal government's web traffic goes through our capability. And this code also and templates are also shared openly among a community of digital professionals. So it's open sourced, allowing us to continue to improve that capability and continue to learn best practices from academia and the private sector. And so these are all many different examples on how we're continuing to help agencies raise the bar to leverage what already exists, to not having to recreate the wheel. And I, had, I haven't even mentioned all the great work that, uh, for example, ITC under Laura Stanton does to really help agencies think about how do they acquire and manage these emerging technologies. We're working very closely with, uh, with the White House and the OMB, for example, on how do agencies leverage, leverage, leverage uh, the acquisition cycle and the and, and, and how do they build capacity in AI, for example, so that they can improve their processes using the power and, and potential of generative AI. Similarly, we're working very closely with CISA to ensure that we are bringing the best of technology from zero trust and other kinds of cybersecurity capabilities in the hands of practitioners that need those capabilities. So FAS continues to have an outsized role in helping the government modernize and leverage technology for the improvement of services to the public service. I'm very, very proud of that work. About half our business volume is comes from or serves agencies in the technology space, and that is the fastest growing sector in all of FAS. So I'm 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 increasingly convinced, and it's increasingly true that the core mission of FAS continues to be aligned around a a role to play around government wide technology modernization, and uh, we have amazing leaders at all levels of the organization who are leading this charge. And I'm excited to see what this organization is going to do over the next five to 10 years. Well, those are very uh, just huge portfolios, it sounds like. So uh, it, it'll be amazing to keep an eye on how that grows, because I'm sure with, as you mentioned, zero trust and AI and all these you know, emerging technologies, it's only going to continue to skyrocket. But uh, you're a busy man because of all that, and uh, I'll let you go, um, but it, it's a pleasure, and I wish you the best of luck as you enter fiscal year 2024, but uh, it, it was a great uh, catching up with you, and I really appreciate your time, Sonny. Thank you so much, Billy. It was great to see you, and uh, look forward to continuing to uh, connect with you and uh, with VetScoop. Uh, we have a lot going on. We have a lot of exciting things to share as we move forward, and we'll continue to make sure that uh, we're being as transparent as possible and engage with you. 
uh, to, to communicate both with our stakeholders outside the organization, but also uh, with our stakeholders on the Hill and otherwise. Uh, because, uh, listen, um, it is an important time in the history of uh, the U.S. and of history of the world and the history of uh, how government delivers for its people. Um, we have a role to play in that in that modernization journey. Uh, we have many partners in this space and, uh, and and partners who we're working through and we're working with. But this is a time for us to align our focus, deliver as much as we can through shared services, and really deliver with a focus on customer experience, citizen experience, delivery for the people. And uh, and and I'm very proud of the work that we've done over the last three years. We have a lot more to go. So more exciting stuff to come. Hopefully we get a chance to connect again in the next uh, coming months and we'll share even more uh, on some of the things that are in flight right now. Sounds great. Thanks, Sonny. Thanks so much, Billy. You can learn more about federal acquisition at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks so much. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people to find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. Adam Butler and Carlin Fisher help put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. We'll be back again on Thursday with a brand new episode. Until then, I'm your host, Billy Mitchell. Thanks so much for listening.